Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. We're back with another episode of The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I am your host, Tracy Thomas. And today I am joined by author Nicole Chung to discuss her memoir, All You Can Ever Know, which will be featured on the Stacks Book Club this Wednesday, February 13th. The book is about her life as an adoptee and her search for her birth parents. And don't worry, no spoilers today. I wanted to tell you guys about a book drive that we're running over on our Instagram page at the Stacks Pod. We're donating books to the Free Black Women's Library in Los Angeles and the Prisoners Literature Project based out of Berkeley, California. I've linked to all the details in the show notes and would love for you to join in. If you give books, you have the opportunity to win some pretty cool prizes, including a signed copy of Dave Cullen's brand new book, Parkland, as well as a copy of the new edition of Columbine by Dave Cullen. You'll also win a Stax tote bag, the Stax bookmarks, and one book by a Black author of your choosing to celebrate Black History Month. So I'm asking you all to join in and give back, and hopefully you'll win. As you know, The Stacks is a completely free show, and if you want to help making this show happen week after week, I would encourage you to check out our Patreon page. That's a website where you contribute to the work we're doing on the show for as little as a dollar a month. Patreon allows us to launch new content like these short stacks, and the fun thing about Patreon is that you also get perks in return for your generosity. My personal favorite is our virtual book club, where we meet up to discuss The Stacks book club picks through video chat. It's a great way to connect with this awesome community of readers. And if you're interested in being a part of the Stacks Pack community, go to patreon.com slash the stacks. And if you prefer to do one-time donations, you can always go to paypal.me slash the stacks pod. Remember, supporting our sponsors helps support the stacks. Okay, I'm asking you for one more favor and then we'll get going. Can you please rate and review this show? The word is building around the stacks. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach, which in turn means more exciting guests, better audio quality, and awesome giveaways. So if you take a few moments, wherever you're listening, especially on Apple Podcasts, and give the show a short review. Now it's time for the short stacks. Our guest today is Nicole Chung. She is the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine and the author of her debut memoir, All You Can Ever Know, which we're going to talk all about today. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Nicole Chung. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to the Stacks. 
Thank you so much, Tracy. I'm really happy to be here. I'm really excited to be here. As you know, we're going to be talking about your book in depth on Wednesday's episode of the Sax Book Club. So today we kind of get to talk more about your process and how the book came into the world and that sort of stuff. So I'm just going to dive in. In about 30 seconds or less, can you tell us about your book? Yes, um, absolutely. So it's a memoir. It's funny because I've seen it referred to as a novel a few times, just I think by accident people, I'm sure they know it's a memoir, but they are um, by default, maybe they just read a lot of novels. Yes. <laughs> uh, but it is a memoir. It is a true story. It's about growing up adopted in a white family uh, as the only Korean I really knew in my small white hometown. And then what happened when I decided to search for my birth family as an adult. And my search happened to coincide with my first pregnancy. So at the same time that I was looking to find my birth parents, um, you know, my family was also expanding in this other way. Yeah, that's so cool. So you kind of got family on both both sides. <laughs> I did. It was like very sudden in, in several different directions. <laughs> right. Why did you feel compelled to want to tell your story? So part of it was honestly a representation issue. I did not grow up reading a lot of stories about uh, about Asian Americans or about adoption, and particularly not from the perspective of the adoptee. Um, so when I first started writing about this issue, I don't want to say it was in, that was the whole reason. I mean, of course it wasn't. I also right. just kind of wanted to tell these stories. They mattered a lot to me. But I was thinking, like, this is something we don't see a lot. You know, the mainstream adoption discourse uh, really is dominated by um, by other people, other voices, and not that they're invalid voices, just that we don't hear the adoptee perspective enough. And, you know, with all the disclaimers that my experience is just mine and I don't speak for all adoptees or, or all Korean adoptees even, um, I felt it was, it was maybe a perspective that was worth sharing because it was not like widely available to people. So that was one reason. Um, as for why it's a book and not say like, I, I started publishing essays about this, why I didn't just stick with that format is because I found that I was getting a lot of really interesting questions from people every time I published like a short 1,000, 2,000 word piece on the subject. Um, mm -hmm. And eventually just telling the story bit by bit, like piece by piece wasn't really working anymore. Like there wasn't a lot of room for all of the nuance and all the perspective, all the characters I wanted to talk about. You know, um, I, I think I've said this before, but like it, like the beginning of every babysitter's club book when they would go through all the exposition of like who everybody is and how they joined the club and who their best friend was and what their whole thing was. Yeah. I felt like like in every essay, you have to do a little bit of that orienting because of mm. course, of course, readers aren't like necessarily familiar with you or your story, like nor should they be. Um, but in a book, I was like, I wouldn't have to spend like 300 words just explaining like my, my background and how I came to search for my birth family and like the fact that I was adopted. You know, there would be space to explore everything like in all of its complication and nuance and I wouldn't be constantly retreading the same territory um so it was really appealing kind of for that reason and I just started to think you know I'm getting all these really interesting these good questions from readers maybe maybe a book is how I address those what was one of the best questions you got from a reader if you can remember oh that is such a good question <laughs> You know, I mean, a lot of times it would just be, um, you know, this is interesting. It's not a perspective I've heard before. You know, do you think like, do you think all adoptees feel that way? Or, mm. you know, if not, why not? You know, or a lot of times it would be like a story question. Like, I know this person who's adopted and they always said this, you know, like, what do you think about that? Um, so I, I also wanted the book to make space for some of those larger conversations about adoption and the diversity of adoptees and the fact that we are very different 
like we're all individuals, obviously, and we are allowed to want different things and prioritize different things and feel different things. And so even though it's just my story, you know, I wanted there to be space in the book to really acknowledge that there is no one adopted experience. Do you feel like because you're writing from the perspective of the adoptee and that's not as common, do you feel like your there's a responsibility or a pressure to speak for all people? Not that I got that sense while reading your book, but just hearing you kind of talk about acknowledging that with your wanting to write the book, like, did you feel like people would come to you and be like, well, I'm adopted and I totally disagree I was kind of expecting a little bit of that. Um, but I honestly, like the feedback I've gotten has ranged from this is just like my story. I was so moved to, you know, I'm adopted and this is nothing like my story, but I'm really glad you wrote it. Um, so the feedback from adoptees has been, um, I'm not saying they all love my book and, or have right, all read it. Sure, sure. But like, I guess what I'm saying is the people who've taken time to write to me and I hear from several adoptees a week still, um, it's been really positive and wonderful and like generous to like an almost overwhelming degree, just the amount of, of stories that people have been willing to share. Um, I think that rare misreadings of my, my work tend to happen when people do think I'm trying to speak for all adoptees. And so I tried to make a point in the book of saying I don't, and I've said right. it at, at many other opportunities as well. Um, I can't prevent people from still thinking somehow that's what I'm trying to do. But um, I don't feel that pressure. I, I really know that like it is one story. It can't be all things to all people. Um, I love that it has helped some people feel maybe a little bit more seen, but I know of course, like it's not going to be everyone's experience. So um, there might be some people who think that I should be trying to speak for all, all of us, but I think I, I know, and I think adoptees know that that's impossible. Right. I also think that the best writing, whether it's about being adopted or I don't know, being black or being queer or whatever, those stories tend to feel more engaging and encompassing when they're really specific. I think when you try to write for all people, it gets to be kind of like sloppy. Um, yeah, it's hard. Or you find yourself issuing a lot of disclaimers yeah. or you find yourself kind of mincing your words. Yeah. Um, and there is, there's some pressure to do that to appear, I don't know, like, I mean, not to appear, to like genuinely be reasonable and allow for lots of people's different experiences. But but yeah, I, there, and there's a reason I wrote this as a memoir. Um, I really, the only story I felt qualified to tell when it came to adoption was my own. And so, so yeah, that was, at the same time, I, I do think that, you know, and I hope, I hope it's the case that we will start to see more and more stories by adoptees about adoption and particularly, you know, transracial adoptees about transracial adoption. Yeah. Do you have any books or movies or anything that you would recommend people who are interested in transracial adoption? Because I found myself, we already recorded the episode where we talk about your book, but I was really struggling to talk about it because I didn't feel like I had enough information and that had been, so I was curious if there were things that you would suggest to people who maybe loved your book and want more. Sure. Um, I will think about that. And if you don't mind, I will also maybe do some searching and try to send you some stuff after we've talked. Sure. Um, it, there really is a dearth of like adoption stories by adoptees in like the mainstream, right. I guess, discourse again, like, I know it's a terrible word, but like, you know, when I think about adoption uh, or books that touch on adoption, not necessarily like that's what they're all about. You know, the ones I read. So uh, I remember reading A.M. Holmes's book, The Mistress's Daughter years ago, and it was based actually on an essay that A.M. had written for The New Yorker. Um, and it was one of the first times my experience is nothing like AM, but I remember that reading that essay on the train, uh, my morning commute, it was one of the first times I felt like the wind knocked out of me by something an adoptee had written about adoption. Mm. Um, so AM wrote 
I think I, I memorized it because it's just stuck with me. It was, um, you know, to be adopted is to be adapted, to be taken apart and put back together again. And I, mm. I read this and I was just like, God, how rude, you know, um, <laughs> it, I just, it was so much to deal with at 8am in the morning on the train. But, um, so I, I did, I read that book and it wasn't like it made me feel seen in the sense that it was anything like my experience, but I was glad, I was glad to have read it. Um, Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal by Jeanette Winterson is another one. Rebecca Carroll is writing a book. Um, it's not out yet, but uh, she's writing a book about her own transracial adoption experience that I'm really um, looking forward to reading. And then you know, there have been some anthologies. Um, there's a lot of writing in adoption land. There's a lot of blogs and there's a lot of adoptees sharing their stories. Um, mm. So, I mean, I would be happy to look for some more. Maylene Hopgood wrote Lucky Girl and Jane Jumtranka wrote The Language of Blood. And I remember reading both of those. Um, but yeah, there's definitely not as much out there as there, as there maybe could or should be. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, your book was just so good and you're a, a beautiful writer, like aside from the quality Thank of you. the writing, which I think after announcing this book, I got so much feedback people about people saying how beautiful the book was. And so when I opened it, I was like, oh, this is going to be really pretty. And then of course I'm in the bathtub, like dry heaving, like crying. Oh, <laughs> I was like, wait, this isn't pretty. This is like emotional. I was expecting like lovely, you know, but it is both things pretty and emotional. I personally just want to suggest that if you are considering writing a second book that you consider writing it about Brenda's son who was one of my favorite characters <laughs> that was a, it was a very brief cameo but yeah yes he was I literally <laughs> took a note like please write a story about this child he's your birth coach doula type person's son who like yes. welcomes you into her home and I was just like I need to know more about Brenda's child Wow, you're the first person to have said that. <laughs> oh my God, he was so compelling. I was so curious. Imagine that life, all these pregnant women coming into your house. Sure. Yeah, maybe crystals. he'll show up like in a future novel or something yes, like that. <laughs> of course. So just, you know, just petitioning. Um, <laughs> I do want to ask you a little bit about transracial adoption in the sense that in the beginning of your book, you have this moment where a couple comes to you and they kind of ask you like, what should we do? Is this going to be the right thing? And right. you know, you're younger and you maybe hadn't thought about how you would respond to that question. So I kind of want to ask you now after writing this book and having, you know, found your birth family, what would you say like as an advice for people who are considering transracial adoption? Yeah, that's a very good question too. I mean, I want to say too that like I don't, obviously don't have training in counseling. I don't feel right. super qualified to give a lot of parenting advice. Um, but like when I think about my own experience parenting, like honestly, one of the most important things a parent can do, regardless of whether or not they have adopted or biological kids, um, is to try and empathize and really put themselves in their child's shoes. You know, uh -huh. um, and so when you're adopting like a child of color and you're not uh, a person of color yourself. Like, I think that job can be a little bit more challenging. It is also like deeply important. Um, I think sometimes, you know, white people might not be used to either having these really hard conversations about race or like really closely interrogating their lives, their like social circles, like their neighborhoods and schools and their um, religious organizations, like everything. Just thinking about what it would be like to be a person of color in that environment. Um, a child of color growing up in that environment, like, are they going to find people who look like them? Are they going to find people who share their background and actually have a chance to develop, say, meaningful relationships with them? You know, um, I think it's it's worth sort of doing that beginning interrogation, um, yeah. looking at, at the environment that you're bringing them into, not just within your family, um, but if, like within your wider circle. And then um, I think another part of it, you hear a lot more in adoption these days about 
celebrating and honoring a child's birth culture. I think that's like really wonderful and important. And I think a lot of families find that like fun to do legitimately, like not like a chore, but like this is something that the whole family can share and learn about. And it's great. And I think that's wonderful. But again, I think that that's sort of one of the fun assignments. And it is a lot harder to talk to your kids about racism and about white privilege and about just how to develop a positive racial and cultural identity when it's not one you share and when as a white person you haven't directly experienced racism and might not necessarily be like as aware as you could be about all of your privilege. You know, also like being willing to start those conversations and not just like wait or maybe even hope that your child doesn't bring it up um, because something negative happens. They're going to be in the world. And even if your race doesn't matter, if their race doesn't matter to you, it's going to matter to them. Um, and so, you know, how are you going to be able to talk about that um, and, and not rely on them to like bring it up or do all the heavy lifting or ask all the questions or try and muddle through on their own. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of just the beginning it's the very basic beginning of where I think adoptive parents can start. Um, yeah. If they're thinking about adopting across racial lines, it's by no means like, you know, the sum total, of course. Sure. sure. And every combination of type of human and all that plays into it and where you live yeah, and all that sort of stuff. I do think, I think it's an interesting conversation. I am of mixed race. So my mother <laughs> is white and my father's black. And there's a lot of things that you talked about that I related to. I think that that's probably common just when you don't always look exactly like your family, that yeah. as a child, even if it's not because you're not biologically related, but just that, where do you fit into the picture? And I think, you know, having those conversations about this is, you know, I see you, I see you child, you're a full human. And like, I respect where you're coming from and all that is like really powerful for a kid. Yeah, definitely. I mean, my kids, um, I think they look a lot like me personally, <laughs> but like they're also mixed race. And I think that you know, I've gotten asked more times than I can count, like, you're really their mother? Are, <laughs> like, I mean, I, I remember when my oldest was in preschool, picking her up in the carpool lane, and I had been doing this for like a year at that point. And somebody was still did a double take and said, like, I thought you were the babysitter. Um, I was like, wow, I'm so glad I'm giving the school my money. But um, <laughs> no, like, it's interesting. I definitely don't want to like presume to compare like the experiences of multiracial people to adopted people. I know it's very different. And yeah. like, of course, there are also adopted multiracial people. But sure. um, from talking with some friends, too, I, I have heard them say like, you know, I'm not adopted. But yeah, I do have parents of different races. And I did relate to some of what you write about in terms of kind of being between two cultures and having to deal with people's perceptions and assumptions. Yeah, I think that's what it is. It's like dealing with what people see versus like what you know in your heart about who you are and about your family. Like that right. there that that's there's a disconnect and like as a child trying to navigate that. Obviously as an adult, you start to understand it better, but I do think that like that's part of the hard part about being multiracial, transracial or even people who are not clearly of a race. Like where, yeah. people, where you constantly get asked, what are you? Which is always just really nice. Don't ask yeah. people that. It's really, it's really lovely. <laughs> it's just it's, a terrible yeah. question. Like find a better way to do it. <laughs> when I was a little girl, I once was asked, what was your heritage? And I didn't know what it meant because I was like six. And I was like, oh, you <laughs> like it? I just got it cut last week. <laughs> oh my God, that's adorable and also maddening. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, all that stuff. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. 
That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I have a, this is kind of like a inside question, I guess, about the book. You write letters to your birth parents when you're trying to find them. And I want to know as a writer and someone who writes so beautifully, was it really hard to write that letter and like to be emotionally available to write it, but also like as someone who has a passion for writing beautiful things (laughs) to not like nitpick it apart? It was so hard. And and I wrote this in the book too. It took me weeks and I would, I started it like so many times. And honestly, like I I normally am the kind of person who like, when I have a task hovering over me, like I just want to get it done. I'm Mm -hmm. a big fan of like just getting it done. And I think it's interesting and telling that it took me so long to write that damn letter because like, I mean, every fiber of my being wanted to get it done and get it out there. And like, so things could start happening or like not happening, you know, whatever, but like it would be out of my hands. Right. And, and yet it was so hard to make myself do it um, because it was, it was, there was all this pressure. Like it had to do so much. It had to kind of introduce me. I had to not freak them out too much. I wasn't allowed to share, um, you know, for bureaucratic reasons, I wasn't allowed to share too much about myself. Like I wasn't supposed to share my last name or where I lived or where I'd gone to school or anything that could potentially be used to identify me. And that was supposed to be for my own protection. So, you know, until they consented and I consented, we weren't supposed to really know, really know who the other person was and where Mm. they were. So it was also just like, you know, it had to be so surface level too. And 
it felt like small talk at times. And the last thing you want to have with your long lost birth parents is like small talk. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, it was extremely difficult to write. I knew it wasn't going to be a beautiful piece of writing. Um, you know, I knew it was never going to be like, uh, it was not going to win any awards, but it, but it, it had to do, uh, it was just such a bureaucratic, honestly, like a bureaucratic document, um, mm. like checking certain boxes and, and trying to not pressure them, even though just the fact that they would be getting this letter was its own form, right, of like right. pressure. Right. Um, so it seems like, obviously, in addition to having been pregnant during this whole time, it was just a pretty like anxiety filled, stressful, emotional time. What sort of stuff were you like, what kind of self care were you practicing while you were going through all of this? Like almost none, which is really <laughs> terrible. Um, you know, looking back on it now, I was, well, one thing I was doing, I was journaling like every day. So a few people have asked me, how did you like remember these details? And I know when we read a memoir, we're all kind of aware, maybe the author is paraphrasing certain conversations Mm -hmm. or whatever, but I mean, I actually had emails and letters. And then I also had these journals where, you know, I would talk to my intermediary. So the person who made contact with my birth family for me. And again, that was like to protect them really. And to protect me. Um, I had to go through a neutral third party who was, I don't believe actually so neutral, but that's like a whole separate thing. Um, anyway, like I, I remember, um, I had, I would talk with her on the phone and then I would like immediately write about it. And I would write down everything she said because I wanted to be able to remember. And like, I I was imagining telling my daughter the story someday. (laughs) And so I I wanted to have all these details. And like the first time I talked with my sister, you know, I, I wrote that down verbatim. Like I remember, writing in my journal the night that I met her for the first time because I wanted to remember everything. Even the fact that I was so excited, I like walked into my own door frame and like bruised my nose. Like I I wanted to like remember that. So I was very fortunate to have those sources. And that was definitely a method of self-care at the time because I was, it was, it was my way of processing things. I think Mm -hmm. most writers will, will recognize this. Um, And a lot of non-writers too, like Sometimes just getting it all down, like that's how you deal with it. That's how you start to process. And I did have like a good support system. One thing I've said in other, in other interviews is that I wish, I do wish I'd found like a good adoption competent therapist. It can be really hard to find one. A lot of wonderful therapists out there, of course, but like finding one with a real background in and knowledge of adoption, who's worked with adoptees, maybe even like counseled them while they're going through reunion who can understand and be empathetic to like birth family issues too. And like adoptive parent issues, you know, that's kind of a tall order. And, uh, so, but I didn't even really try. There was so much going on and I was pregnant and so tired. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and I, right. think, I think in retrospect, of course, like it would have been better. I would have benefited so much from just having great like adoption competent therapy during that process. But yeah, I was very lucky in my support systems and in a sense going through two huge important life changes at once it took the pressure you know like it would release the pressure on one area like my pregnancy anxiety or whatever like I could focus on my birth family search and it would be a distraction from like how nervous I was about becoming a mom or you know I could focus on the excitement of pregnancy and like impending birth and like kind of release some of the pressure um, and some of the anxiety I had about my birth family and what would happen and so you would think it would just be double the stress and it kind of was but it was also nice it was nice in a way that it was divided. And right. That, you had like equally high stakes right, things was, to focus on separately. Exactly. Like at any other point in my life, the reunion would have been like the thing. It would have right. dominated like my every thought. Right. But like because I was expecting a child and getting ready for that, you know, it couldn't. It just couldn't be that. 
And right. in a way, I think that helped. Totally. Did you, when you were writing the book, where were you writing? What were you reading, listening to, watching? What snacks were you eating? What were you drinking? Like, what was your <laughs> rituals? All that stuff. I'm always so curious, like, how the writing happens. Yeah, I honestly, it's so funny. I, I don't have super vivid memories of writing every word of this book. <laughs> you think I would remember it better. It was a really strange time. I'd been at this website called The Toast and mm-hmm. it closed and it was around the time I was starting my book. Um, and so that I was going through like this big life career transition, didn't know what would be happening next. And so that was like part of my distraction. I think it, I remember it being hard to dive in. And then also, like, I started writing it over the summer when both my kids were home from school. (laughs) And I hadn't lined up childcare because, again, my website had closed and so I was unemployed. (laughs) Um, So they were, like, here, underfoot. I think probably early chapters, I've said this before, but I'm sure that, like, I wrote them with, like, Disney movies on in the background. (laughs) Um, I've never been one of those writers who had the luxury of, like, a, a writing like cave. I mean, it's a very good question. And I I love hearing other people are listening to like, I truly did not have a playlist going with this. Like, probably it was like noisy in my house, probably like my kids were doing something. (laughs) Like, and I I did a lot of it just like in the margins, I wrote a lot of it in the evening after they went to bed, I wrote a lot of it on the weekend. I remember many days where my husband would just take them out of the house, like all day Saturday, and I would write all day and try to remember to drink liquids. But like, (laughs) It, it was just like a time that I had that was just mine. So yeah, I am afraid I don't have like... No, that's an amazing answer. I love that answer. It really was just like whenever I could, like whenever I could. Um, and I'm fortunate too in that after... Um, so I did eventually, I was hired by um, Catapult to run their web magazine or to work on it, and which I now run. But it was also, it's a full-time job, but it was flexible enough to the point where if I was really feeling in the groove one morning, I could spend the morning working on the book and I could make up those hours later, Mm. um, which made a big difference. I think it would have been very difficult to do without a flexible like work arrangement. And also honestly, without a really supportive partner who truly co-parents, I don't want to make it sound like he deserves some kind of award. He doesn't, you know, it's just (laughs) like, it's like what people should be doing. But, um, I, I just know that like often, like a lot of the, um, a lot of that domestic burden and emotional labor falls on like just the woman. And it, it really hasn't ever been like that in our relationship, fortunately. So, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to like keep the whole household running. I never cooked dinner. Like, (laughs) and there were just things I was able to um, not worry about during that, that year, year and a half where I was writing. Wow. And so it took you about a year, year and a half to write the book itself. I I think so. I think it was like 14, 15 months. And then um, we did, you know, some edits. And that, that includes like both my first draft. And at that point, I then had this like wild dream about restructuring my whole book. And then I, <laughs> so I, I did that. Um, it took like an extra month or two once I decided to rearrange things. Um, my editor was such a sport about it. But, uh, but yeah, I think it was probably 14, 15 months to wow. a full draft that we were happy with. And that's when it went to the copy editor. And how did you come up with the title and the cover? Oh, I didn't come up with the cover. So I should give um, props to Nicole Caputo, who's our art director uh, at Catapult. And then the designer of the of the cover is Donna Cheng. And so you don't have any say in the cover? I definitely had a say. Like they showed me some options and asked Got for it. feedback. But I mean, I was certainly not coming up with ideas myself. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> I am not an artist. Yeah. <laughs> so I, and I really did trust the artistic team. That said, it was interesting because, um, not to go down a rabbit hole about the cover, but like, 
there was one point at which the the branches on the cover weren't uh, still connected. They were just completely severed. And I, I thought, like a friend pointed this out to me and then I brought it to the team. Like I really felt it was important to show that there was still this kind of frayed yes, but connection. connection. Right. Because the whole, in many ways, a lot of the book is about like how these original connections like can still be very important. And for an adoptee, a birth family, you know, that history, that identity, even if you never know them, is still kind of a part of you and who you are. And so I didn't want it to seem like I was completely severed, right. you know, from, from this, particularly when when I did kind of try to put my family back together in different ways. So right. um, that was one of my notes. But no, like they came up with, with the design options and then I offered feedback. And how about the title? The title. Titles are so hard. Yeah. I really struggle with them. It's like the hardest thing, except for actually writing. <laughs> I remember kicking around different ideas uh, and then so it really did occur to me because of that conversation I mentioned I think in the very very first chapter um, of where my adoptive parents had said to me as a child like whenever I would get frustrated with the fact that we didn't know very much about my birth family um, you know they would say well you know we're sorry but this is all you might ever know because um, it's a closed adoption, you know, we just don't know a lot about them. Mm. Um, the idea of that being all you can ever know, like literally those are like words I heard verbatim, you know, as a child over and over. Uh, and they were saying it as a way of like, I think trying to help me be at peace with things that we couldn't know. But when I think about it now, I think about just like the fact that, um, yeah, knowledge is such a, it's such an interesting concept. And in many ways, it isn't just like a matter of finding information that, that's out there. It's a matter of like kind of what's like, honestly, what's kept from you, um, what's even available to you and like what you have to do to sort of unlock it. So I don't know, I find I found the idea of all you can ever know kind of powerful because to me, it's also it is about learning more about my roots. But it's also an acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, for a long, long time, the parameters of what I could know were really um, kind of infl uh, not inflicted. That's like too harsh. But like it was determined by choices other people made. Right. Um, my adoptive parents, my birth parents, the state of Washington. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really like finding out more, unlocking that information. It took, um, it was not easy. Um, so I sort of wanted the title to hint at that as well. Yeah, I feel like it definitely, we had a whole conversation about it on the episode this week. So, so let me just, I have just a few more questions for you. One of which is, was there anyone that read the book that reached out to you that like, you were excited about like it was like a celebrity or a writer that you really admired or like anybody like that that you kind of were like oh my god I can't believe they read my words um no one famous has reached out to me yet I haven't heard if anybody has like picked it up you know obviously unless they have written to me directly mm -hmm. I mean the responses that have meant the most to me are from fellow adoptees and as I mentioned I've been getting like those I got several a day for the first few weeks of publication and I still get several a week now. And I've heard from adoptees as young as 14 and as old as like in their 70s and 80s of all races and backgrounds. Honestly, publication can be really overwhelming. And when I do get overwhelmed, there are times I will just open up that folder and like look at those emails again because oh. it just means the world to me. Um, in terms of like a surprising response, I was pretty stoked Trevor Noah read my book. I could tell when he talked to me that he'd read it. Yes. <laughs> um, and that's a celebrity, I, I think. I would yes, qualify him. <laughs> no, he was like so kind and lovely. And like, it's, I don't want to say I was surprised he read it. Like, of course, he, uh, I just, I would, I would have understood if like he didn't have time is what right. I'm saying. Or totally. if he had to be briefed on it. Like he has a lot of writers on his show. Um, but I was really just kind of like touched that he had really read it and thought about it and took the time. And when we met in the green room before the show, 
he was saying, you know, there was one part I really related to in chapter, well, it would have been chapter seven or eight if you had numbered your chapters. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I felt very called out about my chapters. And also, also like very, it was clear that he'd really read it. And like, yeah, it, it meant a lot to me. Sorry, I don't mean that. I really don't want to make it sound like I'm surprised he read it. Just, I know he's busy. Of course, um, I always wonder if those if the people who host like late night shows actually read the book. I always wonder that because I feel like they have a lot like I feel like Seth Meyers also has a lot of people on and like I, it's you, it's a question that I've always had. So don't worry. Yeah, right. No. And it was it was just really I mean, part of me just really couldn't believe I was even talking to him. And it right. still feels like that cute of, in person. Cuter. And oh uh, yes, the voice <laughs> especially just really gets to you much more in person. Uh, what it a dream was, boat. <laughs> It was super distracting. Did you read his book? Have you read his book? Yes, yes. I really like it. It's so great. It's so fun. Yeah, I love him. Um, So let me ask you this. Who was the first person, not like on your writing team, editor, et cetera, that you let read the book? Let's see. I send it to everybody in my family, like my everyone I'm in touch with. So my birth father, my sister, my adoptive parents, and of course my husband read it. Um, And I sent it to them as soon as I had a full draft, which is like a good year before publication almost. Oh, wow. um, I wanted to have like a nice long open <laughs> comment period. Mm. Um, and so that was really important to me. And uh, everybody was wonderful, like super positive and supportive and um, helped me like correct a couple of things. Just like, you know, they're like, you got the year wrong. It was this year oh. or, or something like that, like little stuff. But nobody was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you wrote that. Please take this out. Like no one said that. Um, I did want to have, I wanted them to have a chance like to, to read and read it again and like really think about it, um, and let me know if something made them really uncomfortable. So, um, that was important to me. And then I also shared it, you know, I shared it with some Korean American friends. I shared it with some fellow Korean adoptees, um, early on. So I think those are probably the first people, you know, again, outside of like the publishing family that, that saw it. Right. And if you could have one person read it dead or alive, just anyone that you would love to know read your book, who would that be? Oh my gosh, that is another really great question. It's already <laughs> kind of a dream to me that writers I really admire have read it. Like even just the people who blurbed it, like yeah. I was like, it felt like such a huge, it's such a hard ask and it felt like such a huge favor. And I, some of them are my friends, but some of them also like I've looked up to for so long. Um, the fact that like Celeste Ng read the book early and mm-hmm. had such a beautiful blurb and like my friend Alexander Chi, like I mean, I was honestly like just thrilled to death that they were reading it and that they didn't hate it. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think who I would really love to read it. Um, I don't know, like how now I'm trying to think of really famous adoptees or something. That's a good question. Gosh, I don't know. It's okay. No, don't worry. I, this one always stumps people. Yeah. It's a I mean, hard I will one. say the first Asian American author I remember reading was Amy Tan. Mm. Um, you know, I would, I wouldn't expect like a long response or like anything like that, but like I, I, uh, I did really want to send her a copy. Um, and so, yeah, it would be interesting to know if she read it, I guess. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, I'm really, I'm really honored when anybody reads it, um, at all. So like obviously famous or not, it feels like, it feels like a great honor that people will spend time with it, you know, and, there's a lot of great stuff to read. So yeah. it means a lot that anybody will. Um, oh, if Christy Yamaguchi wanted to read and talk <gasps> about it, that would be pretty Oh sweet. my gosh. If Christy Yamaguchi wanted to read it and then call me and talk about it, I'm also available to talk to Christy Yamaguchi at any time. Okay. Well, if she reaches out to me, I will let her know that. <laughs> yeah. Just let, we'll all get together. We'll get coffee. <laughs> yeah, I love her so much. Yeah. Of course. How could you not? She's amazing. It's so just, uh, 
figure skaters in general just really do it for me. Well, thank you so much. I'll let you have the last word if there's anything else that you want to say. Oh, um, again, like I, I don't think <laughs> I don't think I have anything super profound, but um, but no, like thank you so much for having me on the show, um, and thank you for choosing it for the book club for the sex. It just means a lot to me. Um, yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much for finding time to chat with us, and um, thank you, listeners. We'll see you guys in the snacks. Thank you so much for listening to The Short Stacks and thank you to our guest, Nicole Chung, for joining us today. Be sure to get your copy of her book, All You Can Ever Know, wherever you get your books. And join us Wednesday, February 13th for The Stacks Book Club, where we discuss all you can ever know. Make sure to check out our book drive over on Instagram at The Stacks Pod and use the link in the show notes for more details. Help support this show and earn awesome perks by going to patreon.com slash the stacks or make one-time contributions at paypal.me slash the stacks pod. Make sure you're subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This episode of The Short Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.